This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Thank you for joining me. Libby returns from her vacation tomorrow. It was all the talk at dinner tables across the province yesterday that Ontario's daily COVID-19 case number had surpassed 200 for the first time in more than three weeks. And of those 203 cases, two-thirds were people 39 and under prompting the medical officers of health across the province and political leaders to warn young adults not to go to parties and to stay within one social circle. It's being called COVID fatigue. It's also being referenced as an invincibility factor among young adults, and it's not just happening here in Ontario. Joining me to discuss the latest concerning trend, Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University of Health Network. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good afternoon, Jane. Dr. Sly, Mayor Crombie did qualify that yesterday's number was inflated because of a backlog of cases, so that is good news. But the trend of younger people contracting the virus more so than other age groups, that is still a problem. Yeah, with the exception of the maritime provinces, all the other southern provinces are all seeing an uptick in the last uh, 10, 14 days. It's very disturbing. Dr. Vaisman, what are your thoughts about this? Yes, it's unfortunate that we see the cases rise recently. And as you mentioned, uh, one of the important things to highlight anytime cases rise is to think about what groups that's rising in in order to figure out what the best solutions to the problem might be. We got some better news today, 165 daily cases, but we were down in the low 100s there for a stretch of days. Um, I'm wondering, doctors, Dr. Sly, if some young adults feel they've been given permission to do more socializing with without physical distancing because patios are open, they're allowed a social circle, bars have opened in parts of the province. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's exactly as you say. It, uh, we have the fatigue in there as well. We also have this sort of water on a duck's back. In other words, they, they've heard it so many times. The media, like you, are doing an excellent job. There's people like... Uh, we are doing interviews every day, but it's going in one ear and out the other half the time. Uh, you know, the, the sun beckons, the beach party calls, uh, that great 2 4 of lager is waiting to be uh, shared around among friends, and we tend to forget, a little out of sight, out of mind, uh, the fact that there's a, there's a dangerous disease there. Dr. Vaisman, what can, uh, and for our audience, we're older listeners, what, how can we impart that message to the younger people in our lives to make sure that they are observing physical distancing and washing their hands and belonging to one social circle and just generally being safe like they were a couple of months ago? It's an excellent question. Uh, one of the first principles I'd say is that it's important not to shame the younger people or blame the problem entirely on younger people, as that is unlikely to motivate people to change their behavior as they feel that they're being targeted. Secondly, it's uh, it's best to try to 
use methods of communication that are most uh, easily accessible to young people, social media, social influencers, to try to inform them about the situation. It's true that people will get fatigued at this stage of the pandemic, having been uh, seven, eight months out now, and uh, people are getting tired of all the messaging. But I think uh, it's important now more than ever to normalize the behavior and to, to make people realize that this is uh, going to be what's necessary in the long term. But getting people used to that idea now is, is important. Maybe, Dr. Vaisman, it's it's the way the, of the messaging. So rather than don't do this and don't do that, uh, say you can still socialize, but you have to think about physical distancing. You can still get together with your friends, but you have to think about being apart two meters. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's really critical is that if we keep talking about restrictions and uh, restricting things, then people will inevitably find ways to get around it and you know, have meetings in rooms or parties or at homes where they're not going to be able to follow the rules. So if you provide people with alternatives on how to safely socialize, then they're more likely to follow it than simply saying no to everything. I'm wondering if you're listening, if you have seen or witnessed this trend of young adults, so people 39 and under, not observing the public health guidelines during this pandemic. What are you seeing? Have you done anything about it? I mean, there have been a lot of complaints, uh, especially last weekend, about crowded patios on King Street West in the Entertainment District. Uh, We'd like to hear from you on this as well. 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Sly, let's talk about how this trend is, as you mentioned, I think one of you mentioned about it's everywhere but in the maritime provinces. So I'm, I'm imagining that all the various medical officers of health are corroborating in, in how to, uh, discourage this trend from continuing. Well, yes. Uh, one of the main uh, objectives, of course, Jane, is to get kids back in school in September. There's no question about that. I mean, that's going to, that's essential. Uh, but in order to do that, we've got to be sure that the transmission going on in the community is at its very lowest, ideally down to zero. It's not, it's not impossible. China actually in the early days got up to 82,000 cases and they brought that down to actually zero per day for a month. So with severe lockdown, you can do that. And then you can start again from that point. We're still, we reached the lower about 100 a day and now we're up to about 200. And that's still new cases every day. I mean, this thing isn't going away. There's still as many people as that every day. Now, we need to get that community number down before we can be really confident about sending kids back to school. So uh, we're going in the wrong direction at the moment. Dr. Vaisman, does that mean putting a hold on stage three for uh, for Peel and Toronto and Windsor-Essex? What, what, what would you advise? Uh, yeah, I think if you're seeing... Um in certain areas, an uh, important thing is that every anytime you see a bump in the numbers is to focus on where that's occurring, which age groups, what population, what region. And if, in fact, if, uh, you see a specific rise in a region where you're concerned, then it does make sense to hold off or to slow down the reopening of things. Otherwise, you're potentially making the problem worse. But certainly, if, if, it's, if it's isolated to an area, you could focus on your interventions and, re- and slow down the openings. But if it's not isolated to a specific area, that you're going to have to, you know, do measures that are uh, more broad and affect the entire province. So, so some 
some spikes in the numbers will have specific solutions and some will have to be far more broad in their in their approach. Dr. Sly, I'm wondering why Ottawa was allowed to move to stage three so soon. Their, their case, their daily cases are right up there with Peel region, in some cases more per day. Uh, do you have any insight or insight into why that's why they moved ahead so quickly? I really don't. It's an excellent observation. Uh, normally, we see some reasonably uh, good response to localized cases uh, and, and where they're occurring. But uh, I don't know. Maybe in Ottawa, it was uh, more concentrated in uh, long-term care homes. I don't know, in which case it's not really community spread. But I haven't looked at the figures of those. Right. It is concerning, and it is a bit of a paradox. Um when we talk about young people, and I was mentioning there about social circles, uh, I, it must be it must be a good month now uh, when Premier Ford uh, suggested or allowed that people could be in social circles with ten people as long as each of those individuals is not in other social circles. Let's talk about the definition of a social circle because there may be some confusion, Doctor Vaseman. Yeah, the important thing to realize is that when you're, if you're interacting with people and you're, you're not maintaining distance, then you're essentially within their circle here, which means that if you, by chance, become infected with a virus, you can contaminate or infect other people in that group to the same extent and are at the same risk. So anyone who you're not maintaining a social distance, uh, so you're keeping at least two meters, uh, you're wearing a mask when interacting with them, if you're not doing that, you're within their circle. So the idea behind uh, these recommendations around socialization to keep the numbers low, first of all, and then if you're if you are meeting and they're not within your bubble, it's not within your circle, then you're maintaining the appropriate uh, precautions between you and uh, the people you're meeting with. Dr. Sly, was the social circle a good idea when it was brought in or did it confuse the messaging somewhat? I think it was brought in as an aid memoir, you know, because uh, people weren't just following the uh, the suggestions and the advisories. So they needed some reminder as to what that really all was about, whether it was a physical circle like we drew in parks, if you remember, right. or a sort of a metaphorical circle about your, your own group. Remember, the whole thing is a is a probability game. It's not sort of it's safe up to this this centimeter and beyond that it's unsafe. That doesn't exist. It's just a case of trying to get people to do uh, the, the activities that would reduce as far as reasonably possible the risk of transmission. And that's uh, that's needed. We all need that reminder. If we set up a in fact a, an ICU bed with a, a patient in it hooked up to a ventilator and tubes on every orifice in, on the beach or something, there would be a constant reminder that the, this uh, this uh, pandemic is not that far away, but it's, it's out of sight. It's, it's hidden away in a hospital somewhere. If it was, the moment somebody was, was infected, they turned purple and foamed at the mouth, again, there'd be a reminder because you'd see people on the street like that. But it's, uh, it's invisible. And that's uh, going back to the larger idea of invisibility. That's the problem with this passage. And we've never seen one like it before. Normally, even with influenza, we can look at you and say, look, you look ill. Well, this thing, we know that uh, 40%, maybe even 60% of virus-positive people don't have any symptoms at the time they're, they're, they're tested. And so how can you check for a, a dangerous pathogen if you don't know where it's hiding? 
Yeah, good point. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane for Libby. She returns tomorrow. And on the line with us, Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University of Health Network. Your phone calls are invited if you'd like to talk about this trend that we've been seeing of late. Young adults uh, seem to be contracting the virus at a much higher rate than other age groups. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Changing topics here slightly. Dr. Sly, let's talk about how the virus is manifesting itself in the various age groups. Could Can you say decisively there is a commonality in how it affects an individual uh, depending on their age? Well, what we've noticed is that is that uh, younger age groups uh, may well become infected with it. We can certainly retrieve the virus from the nasopharynx, but they don't seem to manifest the symptoms. And even if they do manifest the symptoms, the the serious nature of it, including fatalities, is is vanishingly small as you get down to uh, young kids. But on the other end of the scale, it's uh, it's very much top heavy. The risk of dying if you are a case in the uh, older age groups is uh, is quite enormous. It's uh, way up above uh, 14, 15, even 18 percent in many cases. This puts them to very serious disease. So the the, the idea then that you've got uh, young kids, as uh, we talked a moment ago about going to school, uh, and no kid really is going to follow the mask uh, precautions unless you're in Taiwan. And, and so on, and so it's a it's a fertile area for transmission of the virus one to another in the school classroom, particularly small smaller grades, younger grades. But of course, those kids aren't going to suffer from it in most cases. But they're going to go home and give grandpa and grandma, great uncle and aunts, uh, the case, the infection, and they're the other ones who will suffer and probably die. So it's that intermediate stage. Those innocent kids are going to be the 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 vector almost in this case of a disease. It's a uh, uh, almost can be out of control. It is in the States, for, for sure. Yes. Uh, well, since you bring up uh, the schools, how do you know, and I know they're grappling with it right now, how do you know whether it's the right time in a pandemic to physically send children to school, Dr. Sly? Well, there's a, uh, there's a uh, statistic that we're counting on. Oh, we, I think we just lost uh, Dr. Sly, but we'll get him back here momentarily. Dr. Vaisman, would you be able to pick up on that thought? Sure. It's, it's a very challenging question to know when it's when a society is ready to return to schools. I think you have to look at uh, various factors, including the ability of uh, the public to adhere to public health measures, recommendations around reducing the transmission of the virus. But the most important variable is what's the community transmission like? Are you still, still seeing a number, are you still seeing a high number of cases? Are, is the positivity rate from the testing that you're doing dropping? If the case is that the positivity rate is dropping, the total number of cases there's dropping, and there's been several numbers thrown around, you know, something like 25 per 100,000, for example, every, every jurisdiction will have a different kind of threshold for what to look at. But the general idea is that you want to see cases well-controlled in the community before opening up. So you might, so a good, good examples of that where that's a good idea might be uh, countries like in uh, Southeast Asia or in Central Europe, where they are seeing numbers drop, where they have been able to test that, for example, Netherlands, to open up, see what happens, be able to manage the cases effectively. 
But then you're seeing examples where the opposite end, where in the United States, where they clearly don't have good community control and they're still discussing the possibility of opening up schools, you can very clearly see that that's not going to be very effective. Not only is it going to lead to a lot of transmission inside the schools, but the extra burden of the cases that result from the school openings will burden the healthcare system even more. So for, for those reasons, you need to make sure that the community spread is very low before you can reliably open them up. Uh, Dr. Sly, sorry we lost you there momentarily, but we've uh, got you back. I wanted to allow you to finish your thought there about the schools. Oh, yeah. Um, the the uh, One of the issues there, I'm not quite sure when I got cut off, but even so, we were talking about something called the positivity rate, positivity rate. And that is not just the more sampling, but it's the proportion of, uh, of uh, samples that come back positive. And when we'd like to see that down low, hopefully about one and a half, two percent would be ideal before the schools open. In other words, no matter how many samples you take, we don't want to see more than about one and a half or two percent positive. That means that it's, it's the, the rate of spread in the community is pretty low, and that's you could probably cautiously let kids back in school. If it's up 20, 30 percent, that's not a time to let kids back in school at all. And, and like it or not, we're going to have to keep them home again. And on, you know, for the opposite scenario, uh, Dr. Baseman, what indicators would suggest that restrictions would need to be tightened again? The vast majority of the province going into stage three on Friday. When would we know if the numbers start going up when they uh, what what would the numbers look like for the public health experts to recommend pulling back? It's a very good question. And because the experience is very new with this virus, we don't have any hard numbers to be able to say that at such and such threshold, we should be changing things. But general guidance would include, uh, again, the positivity rate from the testing that you're doing in the province. Also, the number of cases you're, you're uh, getting from day to day. If, say, over a seven-day average, you're seeing incremental rises in number of cases you're seeing, and if, say, that the proportion of the rise is quite significant, uh, that would be an indication that you need to go back to having more restrictions. On top of that, you can also use that information to calculate the reproductive number to, to figure out how many cases potentially might generate from a single case. If that number is increasing, certainly if it's above one and continuing to increase, that means that you're going to see more and more cases develop if you if you don't do any, something about it. So I think depending it depends on the jurisdiction and depends on your population, but those are the general parameters you'd be looking at to decide on what to do next. And, and just a final question for both of you. There's a lot of talk uh, about a second wave, a potential second wave. What leads to that, Dr. Sly? What would lead to a second wave of COVID-19 uh, cases here in Ontario and in Canada? Well, people were for a number of months thinking about uh, the same model as influenza, but we've got really no evidence that this is seasonal at all. It's not an influenza virus, and it doesn't seem to behave like one. Instead, I think what we've got is what we must call a behavioral second wave. It's a second wave governed by people's actions, activities, and behaviors, and the way it's going, it's not looking uh, very good at all. We first began to see this uh, right after Mardi Gras, if you remember, Jane, back at the end of uh, end of February. We said, okay, let's let's wait another five to ten days, and sure enough, the numbers began to go up in New Orleans. And the same thing happened in California and Texas and certainly Florida with those beach parties, especially the nighttime beach parties. I mean, the sun may destroy the virus in the day, but you've got the, the beer and the, and the fire and the dirt on the beach. That's an ideal situation. And the bars opening up in this last two weeks, it's all happening. 
So the second wave is really behavioral, and therefore to reverse it back down again, it's, we need to reverse those behaviors mm-hmm. and get this under check. Dr. Vaisman? Yeah, I absolutely agree that behavior is, is a very important element. Uh, the other important element is, uh, is importation of cases, that if you start to open the border, you might see, especially between Canada and the U.S., you'll see cases coming in, and that will definitely influence a second wave. And as a result, the government has decided to keep delaying that decision to open the border up uh, because the control in the U.S. has, of course, not been nearly as good as it's been in Canada. So this decision is very important across the world because depending on where you are, you have to consider where your citizens are going to go and where people from uh, other parts of the world might come from to your country. So you might see cases where countries are kind of creating bubbles or expanding their bubbles slowly to be able to safely do this because um, there are continues to be hotspots in the world where a lot of cases continue to arise. And if you don't do a good job of uh, blocking that, uh, that transmission into your country, then you'll definitely see a second wave as a result of that. We always learn a lot when we have you both on. Thank you again for your time. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University of Health Network, and Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University. Libby returns tomorrow. It's been a pleasure being with you the last week and a half. Bob Kompsik is coming up here with the news. And by the way, our fight back voicemail is open 24-7. If you didn't get a chance to call in, 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six four one six three six seven nine six three six. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.